The second reading is taken from the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 10, beginning at verse 19, and that's on page 1208 in the Bibles in the pews. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Thanks very much, Angela. It's lovely to be back uh, in Hebrews. Um, I know we've been in Hebrews for a while, but uh, it's lovely for me to be reunited with that passage. It's one of the first passages I spoke on. I think my first sermon I ever gave in Stag on a Wednesday night was on that passage. So 22 years on, it's nice to come back and see an old friend, Hebrews 10. Um, Let's pray with those words open in front of us, please. We pray, Heavenly Father, just sensing that we, each of us, need to hear your voice, not just the words of those around us, um, but particularly your gracious promise and your command uh, as you see fit to bring your word home to us tonight, please speak to us. Please help us to listen. Please make us messengers of that word to the other people here with us tonight, we pray, and indeed other people beyond uh, this gathering. And may we all be tender-hearted to your voice and not resist you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know whether you think um, Hebrews is where you would instinctively turn as a letter in the Bible for encouragement. Um, So we've been studying the letter for many months now. um, And if we ever get to chapter 13, um, the final chapter, I'm emboldened to do this by the preacher this morning who got us looking at the end of Mark's gospel when we were just starting it. But if we get to the final chapter, chapter 13, we'll discover that the The whole reason he wrote the letter was precisely for that, for encouragement. That was why he wrote. He says, bear with my word of exhortation, for in fact, I've written to you quite briefly after 13 chapters. You might query his description of the letter as brief. Um, And after the last four chapters, which have been pretty hard going, I don't know whether we're smaller at the end of those four chapters in the evening service than we were at the start, or not. But they're quite hard going. Complicated look at the priesthood of Jesus. 
The whole point is actually where he's pushing the letter is exhortation. Those chapters had very little exhortation or encouragement, lots of information, but little exhortation. But the gear change, which you've all been gagging for, happens in this passage tonight, okay? And what gives it away, I think, is this little, little sort of two-word phrase that recurs, let us. So you've got it uh, a couple of times. You can see it, start of verse 22, start of 23, start of 24. Um, somebody once cracked that awful joke about Hebrews being the salad epistle because there are so many lettuces. And uh, in this particular passage, um, you could say this is the favorite Bible passage for rabbits because there are three lettuces. In the old translation, actually, there were five lettuces in this passage, even better for rabbits, but we'll be happy with three. Every time we read those two words, um, please note, they're a reminder that the New Testament puts more stress on corporate piety than just me, individual piety, or you, individual piety. These are things, actually, we're all supposed to do, whether we're on our own or together. So I hope it's okay for me to recast the lettuces slightly, just for the sake of clarity. My first point is, let us look upwards. Or as verse 22 put it, verse 22, let us draw near to God. And that is in part what this service we're having this evening is about. But of course, it's more than just our services. It's what, for example, our prayer meeting will be about in 10 days' time. Individually, it's what our daily time with God, if we have one, is all about. Drawing near to God, looking upwards to him. And at rock bottom, that's the basic reality of the Christian life, that we are to draw near to God um, and take advantage of our access to him. So I hope you see what I mean by saying that's more than just what we do on Sundays, although we do come to this building together to draw near to God. And it's really a repeated theme of the letter. I, was, I got my Greek New Testament out this afternoon just to sort of check I'd got my facts right, but I found a number of places where our modern translation slightly obscures the fact that this is something he is, you could almost say, banging on about in the course of the letter. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us approach, same word, the throne of grace with confidence, or draw near to the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help us in our time of need. Hebrews 7.25, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him, or draw near to God through him, same word. Hebrews 11, verse 6, the chapter after this, without faith it's impossible to please God for anyone who comes to him, draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And those last two examples are helpful because the person who comes to God, it's really just another way of saying the Christian believer. This is the basic Christian experience. It's what it means to be a Christian. You are somebody who draws near to God. That God shouldn't just be a sort of distant thought out there somewhere, but a, a present reality because you've come to him in person. And that's not a physical act, sort of us climbing up a ladder to God's in heaven by our achievements. Not necessarily going to a church building or um, doing things that sometimes we might equate with this, walking to the front for an altar call, something like that, or for communion. 
It's actually an invisible act of the heart, which you could do while you're standing stock still, or while you're lying in a hospital bed, or while you're listening to a sermon tape, doing the ironing, as much as listening to a sermon sitting in a pew. So I'm trying to say it's not just about our meetings. Somebody might say, well, if it's not simply about our meetings, how come it's in the plural? Isn't it the Christian gatherings that implied? Well, it's included, no doubt, but the Sunday service isn't the acme of our drawing near to God. Saying that you come to church to draw near to God is a bit like saying you come to church to breathe. We do breathe while we're in church, definitely. Or at least I think we do. Just looking out, I'm just sort of pretty sure that's going on at the moment. We do breathe while we're in church. We should be breathing in church, but we should be breathing all the time. And we do approach God together in church, but only because we must always approach him. We must always be coming near to him. The reason it's in the plural is just because this is something all Christians do, every believer, and with confidence. And that's a wonderful thing. It's actually a New Testament privilege. This is wonderful. How wonderful we can come to God honestly and confidently without needing to pretend, with nothing to fear, as he says, with sincere hearts and in full assurance of faith. And we mustn't underestimate that privilege. I think the whole push of the last few chapters for the Old Testament believer, sort of saying the whole ceremonial law was almost there to emphasize distance, not nearness. So you think of the center of the temple, that inner sanctuary, the most holy place behind the massive curtain, which only the high priest could go through into, one man once a year. But now, says verse 19, we have confidence to enter the most holy place through the blood of Jesus. So when his body was torn apart on the cross, that was symbolic of the huge veil being torn apart, the last no-entry sign getting removed for anyone and everyone who trusts in him. And that's fantastic news. A guilty conscience should keep us from God. But sin can be pardoned because sin has been punished when Jesus died on the cross. I don't know if it's sunk in over the last few weeks as we've been working through those chapters, but it's brilliant news for us. I mean, it's still brilliant news if it hasn't dawned on you yet, if you don't yet have that closeness to God as your settled daily experience. If you're thinking, well, I've done so many things that are are wrong in the past. Well, Jesus' death on the cross is still shouting out to all of us, come on in, draw near, look upwards. Those things, whatever they are, um, don't need to keep you from God. Draw near to God today and every day. So he shed his blood in the past, and more than that, according to verse 21, in the present, he's a great high priest over God's house. He's seated in heaven, interceding for us. And if those facts are true then it's tragic not to come to God. And therefore, let's make sure that the cross and the present rule of Christ, those are the facts that he's mentioned in the first couple of verses there, he's seated as a high priest in heaven, are the theme of our services, but more importantly, of our daily lives as well. If you sometimes feel like you're like one of those sort of crummy fireworks about this time of year, there are one or two cheap ones on the market, instead of going upwards they just sort of swerve back on themselves and fall crashing back to earth. And we can be a bit like that, can't we? 
Nothing in this world will actually encourage me to keep going straight up, to look upwards. This world seems really permanent, offers so many pleasures and so many pressures on me now in this life. But we need to find ways to remind us to enjoy what is already ours if we're Christians. I don't know what would work for you. How about a, a post-it note on your wallet or stuck on your fridge or somewhere which says, put it in the second person so it's almost a prayer already. It says something like this, you died for me and you're there in heaven for me now, Jesus. And every time you saw that post-it note in your wallet or in your school book or whatever it is, you could simply pray that way whenever you had a moment. Let's look upwards. Let's also look onwards, verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Look onwards. It's been said by somebody, I don't know who said it first, but it's good. The Christian life is 90% anticipation. So we've got much to enjoy now, that's true, but the vast majority lies in the future when Christ comes again. And once again, nothing in this world will encourage us to think like that. I remember an Australian Christian saying once that one of the problems living in Sydney was that it was very hard to get anyone to think seriously about heaven when they lived in an earthly paradise like Sydney, Australia. And you might feel the same way. I get very attached to this place, Little Shelford, You live in the Shelford area. How do we keep focused on heaven when it's so nice to be here? Well, two hints are here in this passage. For a start, we've got to call to mind the promises of God. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, he says, for he who promised is faithful. And promises are easily made. I think we're preconditioned not to believe promises when they come to us from some sources used to be said in the city of London that a gentleman's word was his bond. In other words, he would be honor bound to deliver on his promises. And you almost, in the olden days in the city, that was saying didn't need everything tied up in contracts and legal language. Well, we're a long way from that nowadays. Adverts have got small print in. Even just at the advert stage, they've got to have small print. Politicians don't always commit themselves with a straightforward yes or no in interviews, and you worry when they are bolder about what they can deliver. It's very hard to establish what they've actually committed themselves to do. But God is different. He who promised to get his people home to heaven is faithful. And when we starve ourselves of those promises, then of course it's no wonder that our grip on the hope of heaven is correspondingly weak. No wonder our present struggles overwhelm us. The words we listen to, God's promises, will help us to look on onwards. Actually, probably in a lesser way, but it's still significant, the words we speak can have the same effect. That's why he, he mentions the hope we profess in that verse. So it'll do us good if we hear God's promises It'll also do us good if we speak them out publicly to others. I think the the creed contained promises about the future that we professed and spoke out earlier in the service. But uh, if you've got a favorite promise in the Bible, and if you've got a spare post-it note after using that one 
earlier in the sermon, another suggestion I made. How about making a note to share that promise with a Christian friend this week? Um, They can't fail but be strengthened by it if you've got a promise to share like that. I like the story about a well-known preacher um, who told this story about a, a man who crossed the Mississippi on foot when it was frozen over. And halfway across, this guy lost confidence and began to panic. Big river. Um, you're never quite sure what's underfoot. He finished it. The story is told by this preacher with this guy crawling on his stomach. He was soaked and he was absolutely chilled. And imagine this guy's face when almost immediately after making the shore the other side, he saw another man sitting on a large sledge loaded with pig iron, waving cheerily as he passed over completely safe. And the preacher said it'd be like that for some Christians traveling from earth to heaven. We sometimes think all I have under me as I make that journey is the promise of God. Is it going to be enough to get me there? And I want to say to each other, all I have? The promise of God? Some people will go through their whole pilgrimage worried and anxious and hardly daring to trust that God will get them home to heaven. Can God cope with their failures and their struggles? They wonder if they'll ever make it. Whereas there might be other people who press on with confidence and even joy. They might slip occasionally, but they pick themselves up and trust what God has promised. Well, let's hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. So look onwards. And everything about our gatherings should be helping us with that. Lastly, let's look around. Look around us too. That's really the last couple of verses, the last letters. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. I'm sure you've heard that story about an elderly, wise Scottish minister who didn't say much, just a man of few words. He was visiting the house of somebody who he hadn't seen in church for a while. And they were telling him that it didn't really matter, did it, that they hadn't been to church? And the minister said nothing. He simply leant across to the coal fire and took a coal out of the fire, putting it on the stone half. And he didn't need to say much, I suppose, because before too long, the coal, which had been burning fine when it was with others in the fire, had gone cold and grey on its own. And isn't that really what these verses are saying? We will lose our heat and our glow on our own. If I'm going to survive and keep going as a Christian, I actually need you to help put a bit of backbone in my life. Surely that's what it means to encourage. We need to pump a bit of courage and bravery into each other. Because it's tough to keep going as a Christian. So I need you. Dare I say, you need me if we're to do it. Now in part, obviously, that is a function of our Sunday services. And I think we often forget that. Um, For example... Uh, Surely it's misleading to think that in a church service the ideal is for me to shut my eyes and close out everybody, everyone around me, as if it was just a thing between me and God. No, we actually need to have our eyes open and look around. Um, 
rightly practiced that the personal and the corporate, in fact, should never really undermine each other. It's as I look around in church that I'll be able to encourage others, and I will then be encouraged myself in my personal walk with Christ. I certainly need to be present on Sunday, and I need to be involved. But if we look at the the language of those two final verses, surely they're suggesting rather more than regular attendance at Sunday services. Don't give up meeting together isn't simple shorthand for come to church regularly, I don't think. It's not a, a wrong application of the text, since one of the most significant ways we will receive encouragement is from the preaching of God's word. But in the context, the kind of meeting seems to be one where the members come together and encourage each other. So for a start, the encouragement is mutual. Those little words, one another, imply that there's something mutual going on. Each is doing or saying something that encourages somebody else. Now, if you ponder what that corresponds to in our church's life, it actually is our midweek meetings in smaller groups where all the different believers play their own part in encouraging each other. Sunday services with the preaching of God's word and the mutual ministry that we can give and receive there are great. But actually, in a bigger meeting, we can't easily give and receive in a really meaningful way the in-depth encouragement that we all need. And I think we need small groups for that. Actually, the two feed each other and belong together. So if you think about your small groups, it's a real shame when a small group where these sorts of dynamics that you've got in verses 24 and 25 are described. Um, It's a real shame when they get hijacked so that believers can't speak and give and receive encouragement. What Hebrews is calling us for is member interaction, mutual encouragement. So mutual encouragement. Notice the encouragement is to be applied encouragement as well. So we're to spur one another on to specific good works. Um, You can apply that to TNG or your midweek meetings. There comes a point in a small group where in one sense what's needed is not greater understanding of the Bible passage you're looking at, but to move from the passage to the nitty-gritty of each other's lives. And I used to tell the students at Stag, that they had to get their eyes up from the Bible, not because I thought the Bible was unimportant, but because often they would retreat into Bible study to avoid having contact with each other's lives in one sense. And I thought the Bible was actually too important to stay simply in our heads. It needs to be applied. Notice that that mutual applied encouragement is to be considered So you see that in verse 24? Consider how you may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. So I'm actually to do something for my fellow Christians outside the meeting. I've got to think about them. And because every day is going to be different, there'll be nothing static about that. Fresh thinking to help each Christian face new daily challenges. So I'm just to think beforehand, as I have the prospect of meeting with other people, I'm to ask people, ask myself about the Christians in my orbit. 
what are they like? Uh, what's their situation today like? What's going to help them become more loving? How can I help them towards good deeds? Now, if that type of mutual, applied, considered fellowship is what we should be aiming at, looking around, then I think it emphasizes, is it not, the importance of our small groups as a church. Maybe something even smaller than the home group size is necessary. Many people find that it's in a prayer triplet that they're able to give real hands-on support to a few friends. Somewhere there needs to be the time and the informality for detailed, sympathetic consideration of each other's circumstances. For those who are married, I guess, wherever possible, our closest spiritual friendship will be with our spouse. We should be each other's most ardent fan and most faithful critic. And I suppose you could argue, I suppose people do argue, well, this could be achieved, couldn't it, in part by a letter or by an email or a phone call. That's true. But we are physical beings, and the Bible's realistic enough to know that fellowship is a face-to-face experience. It's not simply a meeting of minds in cyberspace. So this kind of Christian encouragement is really important. It can't be left to chance. So verse 25 doesn't say, hope that you run into a Christian brother or sister to encourage this week. It says, don't give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage each other. Therefore, as we take stock of our lives, we need to ask ourselves, which half of verse 25 am I in? Am I in the first half, those who've got into the habit of not meeting? Or am I in the second half, those who look around, who gather to encourage each other? And the first half, it's such a telling little phrase, isn't it? Getting into the habit of not meeting. It's habit-forming, failing to give and receive encouragement. So a man thinks when he plans his itinerary for that trip for work that it's really going to be cheaper and easier if I fly back on Thursday rather than on Wednesday. And that's the sort of calculation that goes on in his mind. But actually, he's going to miss the home group. And it becomes that much easier to do something similar the next time as well. Now, I don't want to burden you particularly with uh, masses of guilt about that. I know people have to travel midweek, but... Note the the warning about it being a habit-forming thing. I noticed it once in between jobs. There were a whole load of Sunday fixtures on in the uh, cricket calendar that I was getting very excited about. And I I didn't have to be in church. But lo and behold, I just slipped over those two or three months between jobs. It's a long time ago now, but I made a mental note about how it can be habit-forming on the basis of these words. So a very practical response is needed to these words. And I'd love to help anyone here out of the habit of non-participation in meaningful Christian relationships. Love to fix you up for a home group or for a prayer triplet. If you'd like to give that level of encouragement and receive it. And what better reason could there be for doing so than in the end of verse 25? All the more as you see the day approaching. I think the title I chose for the sermon today, Heading for Heaven, was, um, was wrong, okay? 
Because the verse doesn't say we're heading for heaven. It says heaven is heading for us. We're not in control of the timing of that day. It is approaching us, whether we're thinking about that day or not. And therefore, we dare not give up as Christians. There is a day approaching when all the things that make us want to give up as Christians will be over. Our sin, the uh, pressure and persecution we might face, our own physical ills. And in one sense, we won't need each other then, but we will have each other in the fellowship of heaven. And it seems to me it'd be worth us getting into practice for that fellowship, don't you think? Let's look around and look out for each other. After all, that day will open onto an eternity spent with each other. So look around as we look onwards. Now, um, I'm going to break. I've got a a, a four-line summary before I pray. But I thought in the principle of actually going as mutually encouraging as we can in the sermon, we would have a brief time of encouragement before I do that. And I need two people to help me in that. We used to have something in the evening service called the time of encouragement. Maybe with Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Uh, You are open to the idea of us re-instituting that. I think we miss it. It was a good thing to do. The previous two curates disagreed with me when I tried to get it going. And you never fight a curate on these sorts of issues. So we didn't fight it. But I tried to smuggle it in other ways. And I'm going to try and smuggle some encouragement in now. Tell me afterwards if you think we ought to reinstitute it. Neil, come and join me. And Chloe, come and join me, if you would. Um, I've turned the microphone on. Because these two uh, folk are going to be on away matches next Sunday. Um, And I wanted to find out where you're going to be on away matches. Neil, tell us where you're going to be. Next... Excuse me. Next Sunday, I'm going to be in Athens at Exarchaea at the church as they open their, or have the first service at their new building. Um, It's really appropriate here where we're looking at let, let us encourage one another. And this is a corporate encouragement because the financial and prayer support that we give to that church is really appreciated. And the idea that someone is taking the trouble to go and represent this church... Um, is received with surprise. Well, I say surprising. It, it, it got really positive sort of feedback that, that someone would represent us at the church to give them encouragement in their work. And again, coming from the sermon, the idea of the work that they do and that they're presenting the gospel in a twofold manner, both the word being delivered in the church, but in their actions in the area of Athens. So, not just a gospel of written word, but a gospel of action. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens there and being able to support them by being there and talking with them and being able to come back and give you some idea of what I see while I'm there. Take our love with you. Um, Sounds like a fun trip as well, starting in the north, heading south. Yes, I'm... I, due to the vagaries of Ryanair and the fact that 
Brexit was due to be on the 31st of October, um, airfares changed amazingly over the weekend, and, and it was way cheaper to actually fly to Thessaloniki on Wednesday. So I, I'm going to go to the monastery, which is reputed to be the place where Paul preached his, or preached to the people in Thessaloniki from Thessalonians, and it just seemed really fascinating that at the time that our home group are studying Thessalonians, I'll be there. Great, and I think Vicky and Nick and Toph and Sophia have been in Exarch here last week as well, yes. so it's nice to have that link re-emphasised. Hmm. Chloe, you're going to Greece? No. Okay, come and join me. Just tell us where you're, tell us where you're going. Thank you, Neil, for, for your input. Tell well, us where you're going to be. It might be Sunday morning, mightn't it? Well, come up because Saturday. Hold it, hold it. Yeah. Me, Rachel, maybe Josh, maybe. <laughs> um, are going over to um, the Limerton area where the Hendersons are for Rosie's baptism. So there's a, a baptism for Rosie Henderson, and you have an important role in this, do you? I'm going to be a godmother. Excellent. Work hard on those promises, getting clear what you've got to promise, and uh, join the parents in that. Um, take our love, please, to the Hendersons. Uh, for this really exciting work they're doing in the Lymington area. I don't know where the service is going to... Is the service in Bournemouth or uh, is it in Lymington? In Bournemouth. Okay, right. Well, we, we have links with that church because Nick Hiscox came and did our um, weekend away last year and other people will be known there through the camps and things. You'll probably know people there from camp as well, will you, or not? Maybe, you know. I don't know. Certainly some, anyway. But uh, a happy reunion with the Hendersons, and please take our love to them, despite what I've said about curates fighting fighting with them. It was a very happy relation. We're glad you're going. You think Rachel's going? And you're trying to persuade Josh to go as well, are you? Well, we'll see whether we can manage to let him go. Okay. Thank you very much for being willing to be uh, interviewed. It seems to me we have opportunities to pass on that sort of encouragement beyond our own immediate links. It's one of the things that's nice about... Um, camps and other things where we know a wider circle of Christian friends or people disappearing off to universities that there are other forms of encouragement that we can do together let's pray as we close um, and then I'll hand back to Monica for a last hymn just remember those three exhortations that Hebrews thinks we need three appeals that are addressed to us all um, for our time together And for our individual lives, look upwards, so we draw near to God. Look onwards, trusting him to keep his promises in the future. And looking around to our fellow passengers, as it were. And we pray you'd help us, therefore, to respond to that encouragement and to give it to each other in anticipation of that wonderful day when we see you face to face. We pray it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Simon, and your willing volunteers. Sorry, shouldn't have knocked the mic.
Um, our next song carries on with that theme of looking around us to each other to encourage one another. So you may note that the verses are actually sung to each other. We are singing to each other with that encouragement to hear the call of the kingdom and to respond. So if you're feeling brave, you can even do a little bit of what Simon was saying and sort of keep your eyes open and even look around a bit while you are singing that to sing in encouragement to each other. And then when we come to that chorus, we fix our eyes again upwards to the king of heaven and renew our commitment to him. So please stand while we sing. take a seat. We haven't had a formal time of chatting with the people around you in this service, so after we close, do take some time to